have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 1. We're looking at the first 11 verses in the book of Acts this morning. Early last September, we were kicking off the fall season, and we looked at a passage from Acts chapter 2. And um, it was an inspiring, if you remember, an inspiring description of the, the early church in Jerusalem. And the the title of my sermon that morning and my encouragement to us was this. There's more. There's more. There's more to the Christian life than um, you've experienced, than we've experienced so far. And that more is described in the book of Acts. And so I'm excited this morning to be beginning a series on the book of Acts. Have you read this book? It's incredible. Signs and wonders take place. Crippled beggars are healed. Dead widows are brought back to life. Demons are cast out, setting people free. God's people are so filled with God's spirit that they prophesy, they speak in tongues, and the places where they are meeting are shaken. They are so transformed that they devote themselves to caring for those in need. They sell what they have and they share with one another. They break down not only economic, but also uh, centuries of, of prejudice, uh, racism, uh, ethnic barriers, and they forge unity despite their differences. And, and despite all odds, they take the good news about Jesus Christ all over the Roman world, the world of their day. And all of this is utterly incredible when you remember how they began. They began as a handful of confused, scared, bewildered people hiding from the authorities behind locked doors. They're timid. They've lost their leader. They don't know which way is up or what way to turn. They have little formal education, few financial resources. And so how do they go on to accomplish all that they accomplish? Let me ask it another way, a better way. How does Jesus accomplish all he accomplishes in the book of Acts? How does Jesus do all of this through this unpromising group of people? That's the question the book of Acts answers. And the short answer is this. It's described in our passage this morning. Jesus does it by ascending to heaven. Jesus leaves earth and goes back to heaven, back to God from which he came. Let's read about it. We'll start in verse 9 of our passage today, and then we'll go back later and look at some of the earlier verses. But starting in verse 9, after Jesus had, had said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him or took him, depending on the translation, from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus was taken up into heaven and a cloud hid him or took him from their sight. After Jesus had come, we sang about it this morning, and lived among us. After Jesus had taught us by his words and his incredible example, 
After he had done astounding miracles to demonstrate God's power and um, to bring more of God's kingdom down to earth. After Jesus had then suffered and died on the cross for our sins and to break the back of sin and death. After Jesus had then been raised from the dead on the third day and appeared over the next 40 days to his followers, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. After all of that, Jesus ascended to heaven. He went back to God. But more than that, Jesus took his throne there with God as king. Jesus assumed the role of the victorious one, the conquering Lord of all. The language of of a cloud in in verse 9, it's used in the Old Testament in connection with God's great power and might. When God is described as riding on the clouds, watch out because he's powerful and he's a conqueror. Think particularly of of Daniel 7, that great passage that points to Jesus as the victorious Son of Man. In it, Daniel has a vision and he recounts, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's now being fulfilled in Acts chapter 1. Christ is coming with the clouds back into God's presence, back from earth, to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how it looks in heaven anyway. But how does all of that look back on earth? What does it look like down here for Jesus to ascend as Lord of all? It looks very different than you might expect. Because Jesus exercises his power and administers his kingdom very differently than any human king. If you've read the four Gospels at all, the four stories, the four accounts of Jesus' life, you know that Christ is a very different, very upside-down kind of king. And so what Christ's ascension to glory, to, to power, looks like down here on earth looks very different than we might expect. It does not look triumphalistic. It does not look like privilege or even prosperity. It does not look coercive. And yet, if you read the book of Acts, it does look absolutely amazing. What happens after Jesus' ascension, what Jesus accomplishes in the world through his followers, it's transformational and awe-inspiring. I can't wait to look with you in detail in the coming weeks at all of this, but let's just focus this morning on how in the world the resurrected, victorious, ascended Christ pulls this off with a ragtag bunch of confused, scared followers. Jesus does three things here in our passage this morning. The ascended Christ works out and expresses his rule, his victory, his power in three ways. Jesus makes a risky decision. Jesus sets a laser-focused mission. And Jesus gives a powerful gift. 
First, Jesus makes a risky decision. He leaves, and he entrusts his mission, his work on earth, to a handful of scared, confused followers. It's been said that in doing this, Jesus showed more trust in them than they had in him. Jesus says, I'm leaving, and I am entrusting my whole work here to you. These are the people who just weeks before had abandoned Jesus when he needed the most. Their leader, Peter, had had denied Jesus three times, denied that he even knew him. To the end, this group of people had been all in it for themselves, for their status, for their power, for their greatness. They had bickered, they had argued, they had failed to understand, they had failed to trust Jesus. And yet still, Jesus entrusts them with everything. And so Jesus leaves. Not sticking around to hover over their shoulders. Not micromanaging them. Not putting lots of checks and balances in place so they couldn't mess it up. What a risk Jesus took. But Jesus did prepare these first followers, at least. Luke reminds us of this fact. He tells us that Jesus gave them instructions, verse 2. Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God, verse 3. Jesus answered their questions, verse 6. Jesus also reassured them that he was alive again. Verse 3, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Also, verse 4, Jesus ate with them. He treated them like family. He enjoyed close relationship with them. Jesus invested in them intentionally and personally to prepare them for what was to come, to prepare them for his own departure. But then, Jesus took the risk. He gave it over to them, and he left. He let go. If we're ever going to raise up leaders, we've got to learn to take these kind of risks with them as well. Just like people took risks with some of us once upon a time and gave us maybe more responsibility than we were ready for. Well, not only did did Jesus make this risky decision to entrust his work to these people, but second, he also set them a laser-focused mission. Verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was their mission. And right here is actually the outline for the book of Acts. Because as Acts unfolds, we'll see that Jesus' followers are first of all witnessing to Jesus in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 to 6. And then... In Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 7 to 12. And then finally, off beyond in chapters 13 and following to the very ends of the earth. This is their mission and it's laser focused. Notice what their mission is not. It is not to make charts and timelines of the end times. They asked Jesus about this in verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And how does Jesus reply? It is not for you to know the times or the dates 
the Father has set by his own authority. But you will be my witnesses. Have you noticed that, that all of the, the teachers who, who come up with predictions about when the world will end, have you noticed that so far they've all been wrong? Every one of them. My dad used to keep a folder of these predictions as they, they'd come along. He had dozens of them in this big fat folder. And, and whenever a new teacher came out and he wrote a book or he got on the radio and my mom or we were talking about it, my dad would shake it set and he'd say, they'll be wrong too. I've got a folder this thick of all these predictions. Why? Because Jesus says it's not for you to know the times or the dates. Stop getting distracted by times and dates. I've given you a mission. Stick to your mission. Notice also their mission is not to accumulate political power. This is what they're hoping for. After all, they're all Israelites. And so they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still longing and hoping for political influence. After all, not long ago, shortly before Jesus died, they were all jockeying for the best positions in this kingdom when it came. If only we were in charge, we'd fix things. If only we had political power, we'd bring the nation back to God. Sound familiar? How many times does Jesus have to correct us? He does it again and again in the Gospels. Is anyone in the evangelical church today listening? The rulers of the Gentiles, he says, lord it over them. Not so with you. Whoever would be great in God's kingdom must be the servant of all. The kingdom of God belongs to children, Jesus says. The greatest in my kingdom, Jesus says, will be the least. And the least will be the greatest. We saw this theme again last week, didn't we? With Jesus washing feet, taking the role of a servant. Jesus' victory comes through a cross, through weakness, not through grasping at power. But maybe the disciples think, well, now Jesus is risen. Now it'll be different. Now the cross is over and done. We've gotten to the resurrection. Surely now is the time for power. Well, Jesus puts the final nail in that coffin of that whole way of thinking, that grasping for power and imposing our godliness on others by force. He says, it's not for you to know when I'll come back in power and establish an earthly kingdom. One day I will come back as Lord and I'll make everything right, but that's not your business right now. I've given you a mission and it's crystal clear. You are to be my witnesses. And as they do, they are. They are his witnesses. Without power, sometimes through suffering, occasionally in chains, they are his witnesses. And the results are amazing. And that's what the book of Acts is about. It's an amazing story. Jesus leaves his followers. He's exalted as Lord of all. And he exercises that lordship by calling his followers to be his witnesses. And as they are, they take that witness all the way to the ends of the earth. So first, a risky decision to put it in their hands. And then second, a laser-focused mission that they would be his witnesses 
And then third, a powerful gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus pours out once he's ascended to the Father. As we go on through the the book of Acts, we'll see that Luke stresses again and again the, the power and the role and the absolute importance of the Holy Spirit. Look, just in our verses today, Luke points out the the importance of the Spirit three times. First in verse 2, Jesus was taken up into heaven, Luke reminds us, and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, is the way Luke puts it. Giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And then verse 4, Jesus tells his followers, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift My father promised in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. How important do you think the Holy Spirit is? Jesus has made a risky decision to entrust his work to his people. He has set them a laser-focused mission, but then he quickly adds, but wait, don't do the mission yet, stop. Wait until I've given you a gift. Wait until you receive power. Wait until you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Don't rush ahead in your own strength. You'll never succeed. The only way you can do this is if you do it through my power, by my guidance. I'm going away, but I will come back to you in a new way. I will come back and be with you to guide you, to lead you, to empower you through the Holy Spirit. Don't rush ahead of my spirit. Wait to receive power, Jesus says. And after they receive this power throughout the book of Acts, we read of the amazing power, the amazing guidance, the amazing boldness, the amazing transformation that the Spirit works in this people. And we realize that Jesus is still with them. Jesus is continuing to do and continuing to teach the same things Jesus had begun to do and teach when he was physically present with them. And so they speak boldly to power as Jesus had done. They prophesy words from God as Jesus had done. They heal the sick as Jesus had done. They cast out demons as Jesus had done. Why? Because they have received power. Jesus is still with them. It's utterly amazing, the book of Acts. It shows us there's more. There's so much more. Or at least there was for Jesus' first followers. But what about for us today? After all, the first apostles are long gone. And we don't see as much of God's mighty works today. At least many of us don't see it. And so it seems times have changed. Where's the power today? What can we expect today? Can we expect more? Well, guess what? We can. We can expect more. And if you read church history, you realize that God's people have experienced more again and again down through the ages. And God's people are right now in many places around the world, as Sam alluded to this morning And at other times and places, I have and some of you have experienced more than maybe we experience right now. And so why don't we see more? Why don't we see more here? Why don't we see more now? 
or better, what will it take to experience more? What will it take? Well, let me suggest three ways that we can experience more based on what Luke tells us this morning in the book of Acts. And each one of the three um, relates to one of the three ways that Jesus expressed his lordship when he ascended to heaven. So first, Jesus made a risky decision, right? And this has to do with the people that he chose and the people he left in charge. And then second, he set a laser-focused mission. This has to do with our purpose. And then third, he gave a powerful gift, and this has to do with our power. And so let's apply this now to our situation, these three things. Let's first talk about the people that Jesus chose to lead. It all began with Jesus' 12 apostles, 12 guys who he charged to lead his people at that time. Verse 1, he gave instructions to the apostles that he had chosen. Now, take a minute and let that sink in. Apostles. Jesus chose to entrust his work to apostles, not to pastors, not to elders or church boards, although they'll have a role along the way. But he entrusts his work to apostles. Do you know what an apostle is? Literally in Greek, it's a sent one, one who's been sent on a mission. And, and this starts with the 12 who, who had been Jesus' disciples. They'd witnessed his resurrection. He handpicked them. But as the book of Acts continues, we're going to see that this begins to expand, that Paul is added as an apostle. And then people like Barnabas and Silas are sent out as apostles. Acts 14, for example. This isn't to say that the original 12 didn't always have a special place as keepers of the truth about Jesus and as key eyewitnesses. But as the story goes on and as Acts unfolds, Jesus raises up and sends other apostles too, and many others who aren't apostles. The people of God grow as they do. The mission of God unfolds as it does because of apostolic leadership. First through the original 12, then through others as well. Let me give you another way to think about this apostolic leadership. Apostle comes from the Greek word which means sent. Guess what the Latin word for sent is? Missio, from which we get the word missional or missionary. An apostle is a missionary, one who's sent out on God's mission. And these are the kinds of leaders that Jesus chooses to lead his people. Not just pastors, not just teachers, but also, and even primarily, apostles, missionaries. Why? Because if you only let the pastors and the teachers lead, we quickly forget the mission. We too easily, or it too easily becomes about people's needs and caring for them, although that's important. And it too easily becomes just about teaching them, giving them more information, although that's important. But what about the mission? (laughs) Apostles are gifted and called as sent ones to keep us all on task, all focused on our mission. And so here's the the first key for us if we want to experience more, the more that the book of Acts talks about. We need to expect apostolic leadership from our leaders. 
We need to be careful not to judge, not to evaluate our leaders based solely on how well they care for needs or how well they teach God's word. Those are important, but we can all care for one another and we can all grow and need to grow in learning how to study God's word for ourselves. And sure, our leaders have a role in equipping us to to do those things, but here's what we also absolutely need from our leaders. We need them to constantly remind us and refocus us on our mission. We need them to lead us into that mission. We need to expect apostolic leadership of our leaders. And we need to find leaders and raise up leaders who can lead this way. It will take this kind of leadership to experience more of the more that we read about in the book of Acts. So, first of all, it has to do with people, the people who lead us. And then second, experiencing the more has to do with purpose. The second thing we need to do if we're going to experience more, we need to stay laser-focused on our mission. And what's our mission? It's to be Jesus' witnesses. Now, let me try to take the pressure and maybe the fear out of this word witness. Think of a court trial because that's the context of this word. Who's a witness at a court trial? Well, he or she is not the judge ferreting out right and wrong, what's true and what's not true. He or she is also not the attorneys who who build an airtight case, who try to marshal persuasive arguments to convince. No, what does a witness do? The witness has the easiest job at the trial. Because all the witnesses have to do is this. They have to simply and honestly tell what they've seen and experienced. Michael Green, who's who's a great British writer and scholar on the book of Acts and an evangelist as well, he says, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you don't need very much training to start being a witness. All you have to say to get a conversation started is this. Jesus is alive. I've met him. That's witness. Sharing what you've seen and what you've experienced and then living and acting like it's true. And that's what we see the early believers doing in the book of Acts wherever they go. These men and women tell what they've seen, what they've experienced Um, how the risen, alive Christ has met them and impacted them, and then they live it out together by their actions and their example. Sure, there's a place for persuasion. There's there's time to learn and to be trained in in how to present the gospel, and, and some are particularly gifted and called for that. But we can all be witnesses. And in fact, as the book of Acts unfolds, it's not the apostles who do all the witnessing. No, in some ways they get left in the rearview mirror. As many others come forward and witness, Stephen, Philip, Apollos, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, and many, many other unnamed men and women spreading out all over the Roman world. They're all part of the mission. They all share and live out their experience of Jesus everywhere they go. And so if we are going to experience more, we have to get back to our purpose, which is a laser-focused mission. 
to not get distracted, to not leave it to our leaders, because sure, they have a role to lead, but everyone is to be a witness. And so first, people, expecting apostolic leadership of our leaders. And then second, purpose, staying focused, all of us, on our mission. And then third, if we want to experience more of what we read about in the book of Acts, we need power. We need to wait for the Holy Spirit, right? We've already seen that it's the Spirit's power, it's the Spirit's guidance, it's the Spirit's work which drives the book of Acts forward and makes all of it possible. It's the Spirit who transforms a group of confused, fearful followers into bold missionaries who take their world for Christ and transform the Roman world within 300 years. Without the Spirit, there's no transformation. Without the Spirit, there's no life. There's no excitement. There's there's nothing that makes church a better place to be on a Sunday morning than anywhere else that you could be. Have you noticed you you go to some churches and and there's a sense of anticipation and excitement. There's a vibrancy, a conviction, and a purpose, and a bold willingness to risk and to go after it together. And then you go to other churches and it's just kind of dreary. The atmosphere is apathetic. I've been to both kinds of churches. In fact, I've felt both kinds of ways myself in different seasons. That's why I felt compelled to, to, to pray lately. And a, a couple Sundays, I invited you to, to join me in prayer for more of the Spirit's work among us. That the Holy Spirit would stir up our life, our power, our conviction, our joy, our hearts. Because there's so much more. There's so much more. And I want to experience that more. And for that to happen, we'll need to wait on God's Spirit. And so let's close now as we come to the end of our service here by by asking God for more of his spirit. And we're going to sing a song about that. And Sarah, you can come up and we'll we'll get ready. But um, before we sing it, I just want to invite us to be quiet for a minute and um, to invite God to give us more of his spirit. we ask you to give us more of your spirit. Jesus said it's a gift. It's not something we can earn or be good enough to get, but it's a gift that you give in celebration of your resurrection and ascension and so that your people can share that good news so the world can be blessed, so the world can be healed, so the world can be set free so that people's broken lives can be put back together and people can know an amazing relationship with you. So, God, I ask that you would melt the parts of our hearts that are afraid or resistant and that you would give us more of your spirit. 
as we sing now that prayer. You can stand when you're ready.